we humans are in the driving seat and an algorithm or a code can be ruthlessly efficient at finding patterns and optimizing for an outcome, but we humans set those outcomes and those targets. It's very important to understand because whether you use traditional assessments or AI-based algorithm, you can train and reward the AI for finding more of the same and identifying people who have succeeded within a certain system in the past, or you can ask it or train it and you know, reward it for finding the opposite. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about our book, Microskills. Hi, I'm Dr. Adara Landry. And I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis. We're dropping in to tell you about our new book, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, that's coming in 2024, published by HarperCollins. We believe every goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that can be easily practiced and learned by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. Microskills is our gift to you. It's fun and efficient. Our promise is that if you buy this book on a Friday, you will be better at your job by Monday. Watch this space for more information and how to pre-order soon. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. I am delighted to bring my conversation with Tomas Camuro Primucic. Tomas grew up in Argentina and completed some of his schooling there as well as in London, England. He is currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group. He's a professor of business psychology at University College London and at Columbia University. He's co-founder of DeeperSignals.com and an associate at Harvard's Entrepreneurial Finance Lab. He's authored a book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And I promise you listeners, that is truly the title of his book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And I found him through another guest on the podcast, Cindy Gallup, as they wrote an article together in Harvard Business Review about this concept of confidence, competence, and leadership. Tomas has given a TEDx talk, and he came out with another book entitled iHuman, AI, Automation, and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. So in today's conversation, we actually combine a bit on leadership as well as on AI. And at the time of the recording, an article had come out in the New England Journal of Medicine, Artificial Intelligence in U.S. Healthcare Delivery. I'm going to give you a working definition of AI. AI is broadly defined as a machine or computing platform that is capable of making intelligent decisions. So when we get to the conversation, Tomas and I are talking about AI, predicting leadership, and selecting for people that are truly leaders. I'd like to tie what you wrote about in iHuman to the work you do with Manpower Group and, you know, working with leaders and predicting leaders and leadership. If you could give sort of the, you know, Tomas Kamur Pramutsik 101 on sort of your premises regarding confidence, competence, leadership, and where AI is playing a role now with Manpower Group. Okay, first, it is hugely advantageous to pick leaders on the basis of their competence. Leadership accounts for 30 or 40% of the variability in the success, performance, well being, morale of groups, teams, organizations, and nations. 
right? So the difference in the average citizen's well-being, GDP, quality of life of a citizen in Malaysia or Singapore, Uruguay or Argentina, even Canada and the US, I mean, 40% of that is down to the leaders. Of course, a lot of the times those leaders are elected or selected democratically. But unfortunately, as I showed in my previous book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It, most of the factors that drive nominations or basically selections of leaders are driven by style, not substance, confidence, not competence. And although it's perfectly possible for a competent leader to be confident, the overlap between confidence, how good you think you are, and competence, how good you actually are, is about 9 or 10%. So a lot of the times when we pick people who look good, they have a nice suit, they're suave, charismatic, funny, they're going to be clueless at the same time. So I think that's the general error of leadership. Then we can get to AI. I mean, in fact, I got interested in AI as a tool or technology that could make leadership selection more data-driven because I think there are limits to what humans can do when they pick leaders. Like, first of all, you know, I don't know you too well. I know you a little bit, even if I'm an expert in leadership and personality. If this was a job interview and I could ask you anything I wanted and you would be up for a job, you know, I think I have like maybe 55% of chances of making the right decision. So like 5% above flipping a coin, that's not good enough. And I'm probably better than average at this, but the majority of people still feel that they can interview somebody and make decision, look at a televised presidential debate and make a decision. And, you know, and then there are too many opportunities to pretend that you're going to make a mistake. So I really thought that AI could make leader selection more data-driven, focusing on the things that matter and ignoring the things that don't, because that's probably the best advantage that AI has. I mean, humans are very good at learning things, but very bad at unlearning things. AI is very good at learning things, but really good at unlearning things as well. I could punish an algorithm for even weighing in or factoring in information about somebody's gender, race, ethnicity, social class. And humans, you know, they really want to, we really want to attend to this information, plus attractiveness, right? Which, you know, AI, let's face it, algorithms cannot be attracted to a candidate. <laughs> It'll be, it's a nice story, but, you know, not even Scarlett Johansson in hair can be attracted to Joaquin Phoenix. Vice versa, maybe yes, but that's, you know, because it's solid. Okay, and then at Mapper Group, well, we try to lean on AI to improve recruiters' decision-making. We try to do the pre-screening and the sifting of candidates, and really which mostly means the excluding or filtering out of candidates by artificial intelligence, like Algorithms have a 95% chance to basically detect whether you're a poor fit for a job. You don't have the qualifications. You're not interested in, you don't match a profile of somebody's 95, right? It's not perfect. So we will make errors. And yes, there can be stories in 
the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, or my cousin was wrongly rejected by, yes, it happens. But the point is that that's a lot less severe or problematic than if you rely on just human intuition. And when you have access to thousands or millions of candidates that are touching your system, actually to eliminate 95% helps the recruiters focus on the 5% that will not just increase the accuracy of the placements, but also fairness, diversity, and inclusion. Um, so, you know, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my vision and our vision at Mumper Group is that a combination of AI taking care of the stuff that is predictable, but then human experts, recruiters, really closing the deal is the best combination. And I think it's a little bit like, I don't know if, do you use the autocomplete function in Gmail or when you write your emails? Yeah, you do, right? Yeah, I press tab. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and you probably don't do it 100% of the times, but you can do it 60% of the times because, you know, like, what's the point of actually getting creative here if all I have to say is call you Tuesday, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it can save you time to then, you know, and it's a little bit the same, like, with what AI does when it's scraping resumes, etc. you know, it's just basically spotting the obvious so that recruiters can waste less time with noisy, irrelevant candidates or like uh, false positive. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up diversity and uh, recruitment. As you know, June of this year, in a historic decision, the Supreme Court severely limited, if not effectively ended, the use of affirmative action in college admissions. And this is not just going to affect college, this is going to be a pipeline effect into industries. And so there's definitely a concern, for example, in terms of who's going to go to medical school. And it's not just medical school, it's many industries and businesses that are looking for diverse recruitment. And so you've actually spoken about designing and deploying artificial intelligence to select the right employees, managers, and leaders, and to increase diversity and fairness. So where do you see affirmative action being struck down related to, say, diverse leadership and AI? Okay. You know, this is a, this is a very deep question, but I think, first of all, we humans are in the driving seat. And an algorithm or a code can be ruthlessly efficient at finding patterns and optimizing for an outcome, but we humans set those outcomes and those targets, right? So it's very important to understand because whether you use traditional assessments or AI-based algorithm, you can train and reward the AI for finding more of the same and identifying people who have succeeded within a certain system in the past, or you can ask it or train it and you know, reward it for finding the opposite. And so this is really important because, you know, whether you think the outcome is ethical or unethical, because I appreciate the fact that for a lot of people, you know, positive discrimination, affirmative action are an assault on meritocracy. I understand that, right? But whether you think that or the opposite, because of course there are even libertarian meritocratic arguments 
that say, look, if you just hire people who are all the same, since everything happens at the group or team level, the organization suffers, even if there is an argument for average ability difference in favor of the in-group rather than the out-group, which, by the way, is a bit of a stretch because a lot of times that's not clear. AI doesn't make decisions. We program the AI to find something. So long as you can assess something accurately, you can make a data-driven decision whether you want it to go left or right. So that's a bit like saying, look, I want more creatives or less creatives, more conscientious, less conscientious, more extroverted, less introverted. Now, I mean, I personally have an issue with what higher education does to begin with. I think, you know, whether you have affirmative action quotas or not, the system is ripe for disruption. And I not just think, but hope that it will happen now in the AI age, because most of what elite higher education institutions do is to serve as a sort of like credential verification or as a certification or trustworthy seal that confirms that somebody is smart, hardworking, rich, resilient, maybe masochistic (laughs) as well. And the model that you can hire people on the basis of their SAT or GRE scores, get a half a million dollars from them or more, and three or four years later, certify that they're smart or hardworking or rich or all of the above. I want to see the evidence that they have actually done something for them in those three or four years. And I'm part of two elite institutions. I have been associated with probably another four or five. But realistically, if there is very little change in the rank order of somebody's standardized test scores at the beginning and their standardized test scores at the end, which is their GPA, then why not give them the assessment, charge them half of the money and certify that they're smart or hardworking and let them go and get their work experience. And then you will find employers not complaining that they're underqualified and that they don't know anything for the job they have to do. And I want to just give you an example that you'll appreciate since you are in the health medical sciences and work that You know, I probably taught pre-med students at NYU for seven years. My best students who ended up paying half a million dollars to be in New York University and they got straight A's. They could not get into Harvard, Stanford, MIT. They couldn't get into NYU, which was their institutions. They ended up in the University of, uh, you know, the West Indies or Trinidad and Tobago, which let's face it is not the top caliber thing, because uh, NYU would then take students from Harvard, Yale, or uh, Stanford for their actual medical study. It's like, how is that ethical? And these are very smart students that paid a lot of money. For what? And even if you think about the top ones that they then took to med school, there's no indication that they did anything for them other than, you know, so I think... If this is, in effect, a vetting mechanism that is still trustworthy because you have a lot of time to assess people's past performance and track record, etc., 
then that's fine. But I mean, to me, I don't know what you think, but it, to me, if you are truly going to pretend that you are such a high quality learning institution that you can create the leaders of tomorrow, and the top physicians and top lawyers and top philosophers and everything for tomorrow, then I want to see you hire people with the lowest SATs and GREs and turn them into tomorrow's leaders. Because that would show me that you are actually amazing. That you're worth the cost. That's not happening. Exactly. And, you know, before uh, there was a guy, Tony something, I can't remember. We did our TED Talks back-to-back in Cambridge maybe four years ago. He wrote a book called The Privileged Poor. Very, very good. And he talked about how with affirmative action, all the Ivy Leagues, you know, they have their quotas for racial minorities or low socioeconomic class individuals or et cetera. But, you know, mostly they hire people who were privileged poor, right? So there were still people who had the ability and the resources to attend top schools that got them into there. So there's no risk. I mean, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on there. And, you know, but I think, you know, what worries me about this resolution and this kind of uh, change in laws is that it perpetuates the myth that what we have in place and what we are protecting is the meritocracy, because it isn't. Yeah. Is AI going to make it better? Probably not. Probably not. But I think it could. I think it could because, well, here's the interesting issue that when you tell people that, you, you know, you could basically scrape anybody's digital footprint and translate that into an estimate of their IQ, EQ, drive, etc. They immediately think, oh my God, this is like a horror story of 1984 Orwell, Big Brother, China, or maybe even like surveillance capitalism, Black Mirror. Okay, yeah, sure, could be. But where is the science or the evidence that the reality is better? which is we don't even need to use AI to know whether you are rich and you're privileged and you have the right contacts and connections. So I think it could at least make it incrementally better. And I think a lot of the pushback and backlash against AI is precisely because those who are the status quo have no desire to disrupt themselves. And I think my favorite American expression is that the turkey doesn't vote for Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? And I think that's right. I mean, if you are in charge of a system, organization, or a country, and you see that there is a tool that could make things more meritocratic, more data-driven, and less nepotistic, you don't want that because there is a chance that you'll get smashed or crushed by it. What do you wish people would ask you about AI that they haven't thus far when you do these interviews and these podcasts? Oh, this is a really good question. Well, you know, on a personal level, I would like if, if they asked me whether AI is better than my own experience, judgment or expertise at recommending stuff like, you know, songs, movies, wines, holiday places. But you know why I like that? Because I think this is the ultimate space for us to showcase expertise and be snobby about what we think we know. (laughs) Like I like movies, right? So I would never, ever trust Netflix recommendation of what to watch. 
On the other hand, that means I waste two hours trying to find the movie. And then, you know, by the time I get to watch it, everybody's asleep. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But so, you know, so I think that one on a personal level, but genetic level, you know, I think that is AI as biased as humans would be my favorite question because the answer is no. Or maybe like it is right now, but it actually has the potential to be less biased. I think this might be the most remarkable thing about this human creation that is AI. We cannot de-bias our brains and we will always be biased. But maybe we have the ability to create tools that de-bias systems, organizations, societies. And if that is the opportunity, then I'm seriously excited about AI. Along these lines of AI leadership, is there any of this that keeps you up at night that worries you? Mm, no, I don't worry so much about this. I mean, I worry more, you know, I worry more about climate change and, you know, war and, you know, inequality. And I think most of the things that I have been worrying about in the last five, 10 years precede the AI age are unaffected by it. Yes, sure, you know, autonomous weapons and you know, the probability that somebody low barriers to entry, creates more disinformation, misinformation, et cetera, with AI increases, but I think it's marginal, you know? And I think even like when the 2016 election happened and Brexit happened and so many other kind of, like, you know, yeah, has AI and digital warfare been used to sway or influence elections, et cetera? I think probably yes. My view is that it's marginal. And, you know, I do respect the outcome of democratic elections, even if you have the probability that, you know, five or even 10% of it goes one way or another because of technology or AI. I think, you know, the, it's the underlying causes when you don't agree with the result that I think are more indicative and more problematic. So, you know, just like, I mean, I didn't vote for Trump or Brexit, but I do understand why people did. And I don't think that algorithms are to blame. I think, you know, it's the governments that came before or the politicians that campaigned there. Your legacy. What would you like your legacy to be with your books, your writings, your spoken word, your written word? Oh, you're so profound. <laughs> yes. I mean, if I can be regarded as somebody who has helped make the case for the practical or real world applications or benefits of psychology and behavioral science, I will be quite happy. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I think there's always a science and practice gap in any discipline, in any profession, in any science, it is quite visible. I mean, it's visible in the medical sciences, but and more problematic, but it's also there when it comes to social sciences and psychology is no exception. I very much inhabit this gap and I'm trying to make it smaller. You know, I get some satisfaction and pleasure when I see or get positive feedback from people who believe in the power of this discipline and of this science 
to solve some of the many problems that we have in organizations in the world, which are all people problems. With that comes, you know, a commitment to debunking certain myths and misconceptions and, you know, and so, I mean, career-wise, that's probably what I'm after and what I would like to accomplish. And on a personal level, I just don't think that I matter that much. And, you know, I mean, we try to be as good as human being as you can and make life as pleasant, happy, and fun as you can for the people you love and for yourself. But look, we are, uh, we are just an accident in the universe. And why are we here? I mean, you know, the fact that you are just looking at pixels on your screen right now, and that has some meaning because I'm talking to you, it's just a miracle. And, you know, probably nobody will care. Maybe in the future, it will be our deep fakes having conversations, endless conversations about this, and AI would laugh and admire it. But right now, you know, what else? I think it's uh, basically, you know, we just try to make it work. (laughs) That's all. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Tomas for joining me in conversation. And listeners, I really, really highly recommend his first book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? It really talks about sort of survey and data analysis of how to select for better leadership. This second book, I, Human, really rounds out our decision-making capacity as humans and what makes us unique from machines, AI, machine learning, and why ultimately we really need to keep to, well, being our unique selves. I want to end by reading you a passage from iHuman. If the ability to thrive as humans largely depends on finding space, then the challenge in this AI chapter of our cultural evolution is to find or make space between the algorithms, our phones, screen time, and so on. When Viktor Frankl recalls his concentration camp experiences, he makes it clear that humans have a unique ability to create space out of nothing and express themselves even in the most constrained and inhumane situations. In a world where everything relevant to us is increasingly digital, then the irrelevant things may be what makes being human an interesting endeavor. That's it for this week, audience. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DePorto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.